listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC. I'm Mike Seymour, joined by Jason Wingrove, though via the modern technology devices that require you not to be in the same hot room with me as the air conditioning isn't working here today. How are you, sir? Excellent. Glad I'm here. Thank you. Ah, Very good. Good. Um, so we've got a couple of things. To, we've got a lot of news, but uh, I wanted to kick off the show by uh, moving to the front of the show, something I buried in the middle of the last show, if that's all right, Jason. Mm. Uh, I want to discuss our giveaway of a copy of Sony Vegas. Yes, we are giving away an entire legal 100% shrink-wrapped copy uh, of Sony Vegas to the person that can come up with the T-shirt tagline for our NAB T-shirts. So if or you're, hat. Or hat. If you listen to the show... Um, and uh, you would have heard this last week in the middle of the show, but just to give you another opportunity, what we basically want is something that encapsulates the show that isn't rude or offensive, um, especially to us. <laughs> and um, the only thing I can offer up is one of the ones we had on FX Guide, for example, which was do it, uh, sorry, for FX PhD, which was uh, fix it yourself in post, which is a good snappy catch line. Yeah, that kind exactly. Of what what we're Short, doing. snappy, clever. Witty. Witty, yes. And then we'll yes. give you all the credit in the world, make you incredibly famous, and give you um, a copy of the software, and possibly even a hat or a T-shirt if we um, get them made in time. So that's our, Absolutely. our you competition. Absolutely. You don't have to be doing it for the Vegas. Just do it. If you've got, if you've got an idea, just uh, do it because. Do it because you love us, because we love you, and uh, we do the show purely to make you happy. Um, oh, dear. So that's, uh, that's the, uh, the competition. So I, I buried it last week. Someone told me I, was, I thought it was being clever doing that, so only the diehards. But we have got about, I don't know, 20 uh, responses so far. So if you were to enter, you would have like a 1 in 21 chance of winning. Um, so there you go. Uh, plus, we'd be eternally grateful and would buy you alcohol at any event we ever turned up to that you're at also. Indeed. Mike will. So how's your week been, Jase? Uh, uh, busy. <laughs> it's one word, tradesman. That's uh, all I can say. Real, a real, real first world problem, but uh, man, you've been there. It's, yes. It's, yeah. I actually have tradesmen at my house as well, but I don't care about that because I'm about to jet off to Hong Kong for SIDGRAPH Asia so uh, for FX Guide. So um, I don't really have time to worry about these things. Excellent. No, I but have been shooting, have been working, me. have been uh, cutting, posting, doing a bunch of stuff. But uh, yeah, well, I think I did my first HDRX shot out uh, and in, shot in anger. As a, well, there wasn't really anger involved, but I did shoot it on an actual job that was actually, you know, I was actually being paid to do it rather than just mucking around with tests. Gotcha. So that was interesting. Hmm. Happy? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, maybe we can, we can touch about, talk about this later on, but maybe I think uh, what I was trying to do, I basically had hot windows, which I was trying to recover. Mm-hmm. I, I knew if I couldn't get them couldn't get any detail out of them i wasn't dead in the water but i thought well why the heck why the heck not i've got this function i'll just roll do uh, three stops under pass on uh, hdrx for the windows and recover some detail back in later and which i could but you know i think there's certainly no real easy fix for i want to restore hot things in windows uh, in uh, like say red x pro and it is in you need to be a highly seasoned, um, uh, completely responsible uh, adult in the room uh, involved in Resolve to uh, be really good at doing that sort of um, HSL keying to really bring out uh, the highlight pass th- and key it into in, key it into the highs. Basically, it's a little bit sort of 
fiddly. I'd love for there to be some sort of simpler. Well, there is a simple way to do bring. it actually. So what you need right. to do is you need to uh, in Resolve add the X and the A track together, mm-hmm. yeah, and then uh, you adjust the. Well, basically, what you can do is it, it doesn't need to be in Resolve. If you add the two tracks together, uh, you basically end up with something where it's greater than one. And then you can scale that down with a non-linear scale form, which will get you um, a kind of non-tone map looking tone map. Now, if you want to regionally color correct it, then you're right. You do need to do some keying or uh, some clever tricks. Uh, you had to add, add an additional source and then selectively key that into highlights and then you start to get into, essentially because you're keying, you then start to get into soft edges and graduating those keys and, and masking out where it's not going to, you don't want it to key into and, you know, the same the issues of having similar similar highlight levels, you know, uh, it wanting to key into that. So, But if you want to just expand the dynamic range, if you add the two tracks together, and now end up in floating point and then bring them back down again and watch your pivot point because it'll shift, you do actually get, uh, you know, something that'll work and uh, it'll give you the ability to grade that with curves to get something that looks pretty nice. Yeah, okay. Because I think, um, all right, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's in an in a FX PhD class somewhere that I haven't caught up with yet. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, I had a really good it's, time. It's tricky. I just wish that there was a, you know, being completely lazy. I would love there was some sort of sliding scale that says, you know, I've well, done that would this be, because I okay, have so highlights. Okay, so that would be fuel and mm-hmm. uh, a message now directed to the management of the Red Camera Company. Uh, please get Graham to incorporate that into a production level uh, work that Dean can put out in Red City X Pro, please, because... Uh, we're allowed to discuss that it exists. I'm allowed to play with it. I just can't show it to you. Okay. But, um, yes, it basically lets you bring in some stops from the X track to the A track and, and uh, adjust the uh, accordingly. It's regionalized. It's the thing that it is to regionalize color correction what magic motion is to combining A and X track temporarily. Yeah, for, for if you've got sort of timing issues with it, I think I'm going to geek out this app. I think I know you guys like rat holes. I think I'm going to geek out every everything that Jason says. I'm going to uh, okay. Out, so out can I just back over. it up then? Okay, yep. Yeah, okay, well, let's back up to fuel. Yes, sir. Uh, is this some this is this is something new that's coming? Is it? Uh, yes. So again, if you okay. watched FX PhD, um, there is. Um, <laughs> I'm sure lots of people do, but not everybody but, does here. Yeah. No, that's fine. Um, so, yes, so basically uh, a while ago I got a copy, I was told I was allowed to mention this, so I'm not breaking any NDAs, um, of the prototyping of the next generation. So the first generation was combining with a mix, A and X. Obviously didn't solve the temporal problem. Second problem is magic motion. Second stage is magic motion. That solved the temporal problem but didn't solve the regionalized problem. Fuel solves the third thing, which is the regionalized color correction magic buttons that you want. That produces awesome pictures and is specifically done for Windows. It's in prototype form. There's an app that's used for testing um, mm-hmm. that isn't distributed to people. And that is moving hopefully soon from the testing phase into the SDK stage so that like Magic Motion, it can be put out to the masses. And when we had dinner with the guys in LA at um, whatever that was. When was that? must have been something um, not long ago. Oh, the cannon launch, I think it was. Right. We're in town for the cannon launch and the Scarlet thing. Um, Graham was like, yes, now that we've got... Because uh, they 
the team obviously had priorities like playback, which, as you know, people like me were screaming about. Yeah, and, uh, is, and is there in, in Alpha, which we haven't touched on too much, but, man, it is. It is impressive. I, I, we should talk about that after this. But yes. yes uh, so that's I said to Graham, why isn't Fuel up? And he said, well, that was the reason that they were doing this other stuff. I hope I'm not telling tales out of school. But uh, anyway, he said that they were very keen to get that um, moving through the pipeline because as with any company, it's completely standard. You know, you, you develop something in a kind of an isolated sense to see if it works. You work out algorithmically how it should work. And then at some point, you then take that from the R&D stage to being able to productize it and move it into something like uh, Red City X Pro, which is exactly what the guys said they're going to do. And uh, as I said, I was so enthusiastic about it that um, uh, I begged them a while ago to let me post some pictures, and we did that. And, uh, yeah, it's it's awesome. So uh, Playback? You want to talk about Playback? Doing, well, about no, playback. So, so then it's essentially doing what I'm, in some way, doing oh, yeah. what, I, what, I'm, what I'm chasing. It is doing what you're chasing. And it's, it's, it is... It is to that problem what Magic Motion was to combining the A and the X track but not having it look like it's out of sync because it was taken at different shutter times. Yeah, okay, because it's fantastic to have all that information and it's not too hard to, you know, it's very easy to just switch it on. Obviously, you rip through data a bit more, but, you know, it's great to have that, to know that the camera's got your back if you've got a really hot window and you just can't battle it. But it'd just be great to have some smoother ways yeah, to sure. merge that, merge that information so it doesn't treat it more like a whole extra piece of information. It makes it an interesting, uh, rather than, you know, the slider at the moment is like, you know, you want it dark, what do you want it light? Well, no, I want it just normal, but can yep. you just bring the windows in? Yeah. Okay, excellent. It's cool. not perfect yet, um, sure. uh, but it's uh, good. Yeah, we did some, well, I'm stuff in FXPHD, I don't sound like a sales pitch, but yeah, we did some stuff on a, out in my sheep property. We took some photos of um, into the sun and showed different versions of it uh, dealing with that. Okay. And there is a sort of a, another fix if you're in Resolve, then you're talking about actually blending well, things together. Because the moment you have to have two sources and then you have to well, do an HSL. split it into two versions, the A yeah. and the X track. And then you, you can do this in um, other apps as well. And you just add them together as long as you're in floating point space. And now you've got something that's, you know, over one, right? Because if you think about it, the light... Okay, so let's say you've got a, something that peaks at one on a, on a window just yep. for... A, do use simple numbers, zero to one, as in, right? As in 100%? Yeah, so we're calling that one, right? Yep. Okay, so in a scale that's whatever scale you like, you could normalize it to a zero to one scale. So we just normalize our scale, zero to one. In both cases, your A and the extract are normalized to just zero to one for the purpose of this conversation. When you add those together, you might get a window that's 1.5 because it's obviously the on the shorter exposure, you only get half a uh, you know exposure of window and on the full exposure, it's effectively peak white at one, mm-hmm. and so you get one and a half. Now, you're off the scale. You can't display that, right? But the information is all there, and it's mathematically valid. So now you just need a curve and a correction to bring that back down into uh, zero to one space. So what was previously at one comes down, and you have now need to do that in terms of curves because obviously at some point you need the surround that was almost at one to uh, be significantly lower than that so that there's yeah. a bit of room to move. Now, the only problem with that is it flattens out the image. That's why you've got to use curves. But uh, mathematically, if you then renormalize the picture that now has values between, say, 0 and 1.5 and back to 0 and 1 again, then all the detail and all the 
dynamic range is now being displayed on the picture. Now, of course, you've had to compress the dynamic range to fit it inside the boundaries of the new normalized spectrum, but that's fine because now you then start doing things like crushing the blacks and, and doing some you know gamma things to make it look funky and nice, but yeah. you haven't got whiteout windows. Now, what it's done, though, is it's regionally affected everything uniformly. So it's not like you're just affecting the windows but left the walls the same. Everything had to come down to give room for the windows to be there. So if you had shot it on a normal exposure, like on film, similar – God, I'm releasing really my neck out here – but similar things would apply because what you're displaying is a sort of a subset of all dynamic range. If you choose to see into the whites, so be it. But, you know, you uniformly see into the whites. You don't sort of just leave everything the same and suddenly wind down highlight detail. Yeah. That, that idea of keeping everything the same and just re- restoring the windows is, as you say, either king – or fuel. Right. Yes, I just want the make it look like my eye sees it slider. Well, I'll go even further and say there are other apps coming that are going to be addressing that as well. Um, and there are some uh, prototypes of that currently floating around the traps. Um, there's a product that was called Natural HDR, which is now called Ginger HDR, which I think is going to... I haven't tested it because it's not on the Mac yet, but it's in beta. Uh, there are quite a few things coming down the pipe for that kind of tone mapping that you seek. Excellent. But obviously we'd like it to come from the Red Camera Company because they're nice people yes. and they do things that make sense. Indeed. Uh, now, you want to talk about uh, playback? Yeah, yeah. Cool. I had a quick playback. I could pl- quick play with um, playback, which was quite I- impressive. I haven't put it on uh, my X yet, but uh, I was having a toy with somebody else's that had it on board and it's, it's really impressive. It's really intuitive, really snappy, works really well. Very impressive to be able to then play back and then play back at various speeds, apply different LUTs when you're playing back. You've probably always had a bit more of a, a bit more of a play with it than me. No, it's gone from alpha to beta. Is that right? Am I, am I remembering? Where, what stage is playback out at the moment? Because there's not a there's no production build for playback yet, though. No, it's in public beta. Um, yeah, beta now. It works yeah. pretty well. Uh, there are quite a lot of things that you can do to it as it's playing back, as you say. So that's that's nice. But I mean, the number one thing for me is. Uh, you know, you can play back 300 frames a second at normal speed and see what a slow motion shot looks yeah. like on the camera. And the yeah. second thing is you can put a magazine in and see what was on the mag so that you don't go, has this been cleaned? I'm pretty sure it has. Well, I'm not 100% sure. No, okay, well, don't touch it because there's no way I can see what's on this. That's true. Um, and, you know, they, there are obviously a ton of reasons why you might want it, but that's two good ones right out of the gate. Um, and so, yeah, so that's that's really good. I think, though, I'm yet to work out Somebody asked me this, and I, I've yet to work out how I run it from just the hand grip buttons. I've only run the playback oh, right. from the uh, LCD. Yeah, if you've so. got the bomb attached and you only have the side handle. Yes. Mm. So, mm. But I don't normally yeah, work like that. haven't done that either, no. So uh, I don't know. But yes. Right. I don't have my camera. It's gone out as an emergency rental because of some other issue with another, another brand of camera on a shoot. Uh-huh. So hopefully... The epic won't be the emergency either. <laughs> I got a, a great present in the mail uh, today, and so I'll try and test this for you guys uh, for next week so I can uh, comment on it. I've got the, um, you know, changing camera companies, I've got the uh, D Moraine filter to go in my 5D. Aha, they're finally shipping those. Yep, so it clicks Excellent. into your uh, camera and thus provides a D Moray. Well, it's a. It just stops it from producing like that kind of aliasing lining artifact, um, mm. and it's uh, removable. It's not a you know. You, it's not like you permanently have to affect your camera. 
Yeah. Uh, though I imagine they want most people to put it in and just leave it in there. You say it clicks in. It really is quite a simple fit. You don't have to sort of... Uh, it comes with a video instruction on how to get and it how to click it in and how to get it out again um, and a little tool to help get it out. But yeah, it's, um, it comes packaged up in a solid uh, kind of canister so you can't yep. bash it. Yeah, and, so you can uh, throw it in the kit. Yeah, but I would not be field putting it in because I probably wouldn't want to be doing this out where there's dust and everything. Mm, um, just put it in if you know you're going to be... Have, well, yeah, if you're a videographer, yeah. Yeah, if you if you know you're going to be uh, up against it and uh, fit it in at the beginning of the gig. But I haven't had a chance to test that yet, so I am looking forward to doing that uh, when mm. we can. I presume there's no light loss. Mm. Oh, there'd be right. some, but that, I actually right. held it up to see if I could see, you know, any kind of polarizing type. You know, could you just lose? I'm, I'm sure there must be something. But if it's something, it's pretty. pretty if minimal. it's uh, reading through the lens, won't it just automatically adjust for that? Because uh, yeah, if you if the, you just the light metering is going to happen on the other side of it's going. It's like putting a filter on the front, right? Oh sure. No, I just meant if you're shooting, you know, man, completely manual as you probably would be for right. uh, you know for movies. Hey, you know what I had a it's an issue. You know, geeking out. You know, I had a lot of fun with uh, this week. I've been playing with Mystica. Right? Can you? Take, so I was waiting for you to ask me well, how, was, how have you been doing this week, Mike? And I, you haven't asked. I don't think so. I'm no, just going to tell you because I'm selfish. Get uh, that's what directors uh-huh. do. Uh-huh. Um, it's my... all about us. No, it's all good. It's my <laughs> no, job it's to stick my tech in your face. Um, and I'm about to wave it around. Um, so, yes, yeah, so Mystica is, uh, for those of you that aren't as familiar, uh, the really go-to device at the moment for colour grading uh, red footage on uh, stereo jobs. So a good example would be the Hobbit, which has like 26 Mysticas, of which about 12, mm-hmm. I think, are render uh, ones. Could be wrong, could be 24, but it's some number like that. Um, and I've played with it twice now. I played with it once in Los Angeles, which was friggin' awesome, and once uh, here. And there's um, more of these going in all the time, and they've started to move towards North America. They really have moved via Europe kind of to stereo productions in New Zealand. There are stereo productions here in Australia and now into America. Um, and what makes this so awesome, Jace, is that it, it's an optical flow-based uh, grading solution. So... There's a lot of reasons why you might want optical flow, uh, not least of which is retiming a shot and just generally, you know, producing something that's like uh, slow as it all came from the bullet time stuff in the, back in the day. Mm. But the thing about stereo um, and why it's so cool is that uh, is if you've got a stereo pair looking at a couple of pieces of um, R3D footage and they're misaligned, you hit a button and what the first thing it does is it'll just match color. So if you put it in, say, checkerboard mode, it'll you know, match the colors so that they uh, are pretty close. It doesn't perfectly do that, but it's instantaneously pretty bloody close. And then the second thing you can do is you can just get it to equalize or match the uh, geometry, in which case it basically aligns the picture so that they are sensibly aligned one to another because obviously you've got vertical offsets and things like that. But anyone who's actually done real 3D will know that the problem is always vastly more complex than that, that it's not just as simple as a vertical adjustment or a uh, horizontal adjustment you've got all sorts of weird issues like we had, which is to, to sort of acknowledge that there are actually sort of three ways that a camera can rotate. The simplest would be, of course, if it only rotated around, assuming it goes out from the lens, call that, call that uh, well, Z, then uh, around Z, that would be an easy one to fix, obviously, just do a, a normal rotation and that would yeah, get you back. Yeah, but it'd have to be perspective stuff and, you know, distortions. And, and so what you tend up with is I, will, I can align it perfectly for why you know, offsets, which obviously your brain is not used to seeing because your eyes never shift between each other vertically. Uh, so you, you don't, 
you don't like Y offsets. You want your right. eyes to be exactly um, locked in your Same skull, point. which is why your skull is so hard boned. Uh, so you fix it on the right, and it's out on the left. Fix it on the left, it's out on the right, and you can't, you know, you can't sort of solve that problem because there aren't enough tools to do it. Well, so you can sort of manually do a bunch of steps after you've done the automatic equalization. That would be like stage two. Stage three is you get into the optical flow. Now, the optical flow allows it to actually change the stereo or the alignment for background, midground, and foreground, as it were, all independently because it's basically producing a, uh, a Z map based off the um, optical flow analysis. So it kind of knows where objects are. Well, knowing where objects are is very helpful for color grading. It's also very, very helpful for saying, look, the backs to converge, you know, I need to reduce the convergence on the background, but I don't want to change it on the foreground. Now, this, uh, is, this is like on set. This is a, like a one-light sort of field no, grading. No, 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 no. This is, no. well, this is both. You can right. run it on a laptop, but you can also, you would run it on a, it's like big iron. It's like a proper big system. And so if you were doing visual effects, you'd run your project through Mystica before it went out to visual effects to align everything. But I mean, I really, so I just keep going one more step because after mm-hmm. I've got my, my basic kind of optical flow, there's even a sort of a warp optical flow that'll go through to fix, as I say, these, these sort of skew and um, uh, sort of six dimensional uh, of uh, maths to get the thing aligned properly. And to the point that you can actually sort of say, okay, I want the whole thing to have a lot less... Um, parallel stereo effect because you can imagine if you had something that's got a lot of stereo effect in camera yeah if you say oh well let's get the screen to converge at something close to the foreground the background goes way out of whack and you say okay well let's get it at the background and then the foreground goes way out of whack and it doesn't matter how much you slide it in x you know something's going to win either the front is going to win or the back's going to win but you can't have them both because you simply just have that much difference between the left eye and the right eye but in this it literally remodels it in Z, in much the way that uh, Ocular does, but uh, incredibly quickly. And so it's just a joy to buzz with. And, I mean, it's got lots of other stuff, lots of obviously standard color grading stuff, and you can retime and you can do other things you'd expect from... Um, but I've got to like say... Stabilizing, I guess, if one camera is getting bumped differently or if there's a bit of wobble in a camera move, is it correcting that kind of stuff or is that leaving that more for online? Great question. I don't know. I, I mean, it could mathematically it could obviously. Well, because you, you're, you're saying it's doing corrections. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. On one camera yeah. to match them to each other. I don't if, see you know, why it wouldn't. You, yeah. In handheld, as you're flexing it or twisting it, and the stuff, stuff's getting out of slightly out of whack, or or you're on a. We uh, had misaligned stuff, but I didn't have stuff that had uh, high speed vibration, uh, so I wasn't exploring that. But that's a terrific question. I should have asked that. Hmm. Um, but Mystica is uh, built off the old Haleo uh, software, which actually Jeff Huser, one of our founders at FX Guide, actually used back in the day and I think he even demoed it. Uh, so these guys have been around for a while, but there are three principal um, guys that are writing the code and they're really, really bright and uh, very responsive. So a lot of stuff's happening a lot of really, really quickly right now. It's just oh, cool. the, the two go-to product for, um, for doing weird stereo stuff. And it just extends beyond red as well because I know there's um, guys that have been doing stuff with uh, those stereo GoPros in you know extreme sports kind of conditions yep. and they've been using uh the same tool set to kind of solve the problems that they're getting out of the gopros and the horrendous issues that you get from like something that's pretty much pro consumer at that level yeah where there's no alignment whatsoever you have to do post correction because it's yeah you're stuck with any out of whack stuff yeah piece of plastic bolted together yeah i had a play with the um the sony f65 was doing a bit of a tour here i know it's starting to do a bit of tours 
around the world, they've got some more pre-production cameras and uh, starting to get them in front of people. I was really impressed. It was the optical, um, the rotating mirror version, which I think is probably going to become the base version now. I think or pretty much everyone's going to be, they're sort of pricing that base price that everyone was talking about, the 85 grand or so is going to be for the, at least here as far as I understand, it's going to be for the rotating mirror uh, version, which is impressive because I had a look through and I couldn't see any. I expected it to look like, you know, how you look through a film camera, there would be, you know, There'd be flicker, but seriously, there's nothing there. I, I try to work out why. It's obviously it's there to basically help with uh, rolling shutter, uh, because obviously you're looking at an 8K image. It's got a lot of data to get through. Uh, more, I guess, more data than an Epic has to deal with. Up to 120 frames or so uh, has to get all that data through. A tremendous amount of data, and it, I, what I'm guessing is it really can't read the sensor as fast as it can so you will get without the op, without the um, mechanical shutter you're going to get some jello so i think that's going to become the default version that all the cameras are going to have that but it's interesting to play with it and turn that shutter on and there's literally there's no artifacts it just looks like there's no shutter whatsoever so it's very clever very good i'm very impressed with the camera it uh, doesn't seem as big as I remember when we first saw it at NAB. I and I know it hasn't changed. It just sort of seems a bit more compact now. With all, It's got the onboard recording. That's all sort of sorted out now with the, uh, the uh, data packs on the back. It was good to get a bit more of a heads up on it and uh, it was clever. Well, uh, I, haven't, I haven't actually told, us who's, uh, told anyone who's on the show this week. So um, uh, my, my mistake, I should have totally done that at the top of the show because I'm... Uh, I, I apologise to you guys yeah, for physics. We actually have two really good interviews on the show this week. Uh, Michael Cioni from uh, Light Iron is in the red room, and Michael is. Um, I apologise. I think I mispronounced Michael's name last week on the show, but Michael is discussing the Muppets, which is a show I love, and uh, Michael's had a lot of experience with um, with red workflows on major feature films, including. Um, uh, pirates and a bunch of other stuff. So he's really interesting to talk to. Really good guy. Uh, really like his work a lot. Um, but also in terms of uh, camera tech, or I should say, um, well, it's not really camera tech. It's what do you call it? Um, grip tech. Grip tech. Grip tech. Support. Yes. So this week, um, I think it was this week. Anyway, uh, the Academy of Motion Arts and no Motion Television Sciences, the Emmys, basically um, released. Uh, a uh, the thing Emmy? sorry a technical Emmy no the, thank you yes the technical Emmys and so uh, the ultimate arm uh, won a technical Emmy and the technical Emmy uh, is well deserved though I should say that these guys uh, at ultimate arm actually um, won a technical Oscar in 2006 so uh, that's pretty good yeah um, but yes so uh, really really incredible stuff that these guys have done um, and you'll hear in the interview, the big thing, Jace, is the ability to take out uh, vibration of a... Like, they've got a gimbal on the end of it, but they actually break the crane arm effectively in half so that it can flex in the middle so they can yeah. sort of counter-spring the back half. Have you, have you shot with it? Sorry, I should have asked. Uh, yeah, I have shot with it. Yeah, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of mechanical give that they have in the arm and also in the head. If you see footage of running footage of the, basically this is the Russian arm, ultimate arms, Russian arms, whatever you want to call them. 
uh, if you see them running, you will see that head is swinging around like it's loose. You can't possibly think that the camera on that head is actually giving the most stable images that it is. So there's a lot of very clever passive stabilizing going on before the active stabilizing of the head. So they're getting a lot of bumps out big time before the electronics takes over for the smaller stuff. It's it's it's, it's nuts. You look at the thing, and we'll put some links links in the show notes. But we and we have covered these things before in the show. But if you you look, it looks mechanically wrong. It looks like it can't possibly. It looks odd. Like you know, you put weight on that, and it's going to snap. How they possibly drive over rough ground at 120 kilometers an hour, strapping this thing to a Porsche Cayenne, um, and putting a you know a, a 70 millimeter uh, an IMAX camera on it and slamming it over bumps, and you just think the thing will just fall apart. But uh, and then you see the images, and they are rock solid. It's uh, yeah, a, a well deserved um, credit. Well, we spoke to George Peters, who um, is uh, one of the key members of Adventure Equipment that has um, the ultimate arms. They have a bunch of them, actually, for rental, and they ship them around the world, and they mount them on all sorts of things. They mount them on um, on boats and on cranes. There's an amazing shot and a video that they've given us that we're going to put up, Jace, of this thing on a four-wheel drive on top of a crane way up in the air. It is yeah. just unbelievable. Yeah, I want to know what that was for. Who paid, who paid to build that? I think thing. it was one of the Bond insane. films, actually. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, you call it the Russian arm because his partner, right, was a, a Russian PhD um, guy right. who moved from the US. Is that right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. There's definitely there's Russian roots in the design. Lev was like, a, yeah, I'm pretty sure he was. Uh, yeah. he had earned his PhD in, in Russia and then has since migrated to, uh, immigrated sorry, to the US. So. And uh, But they're really nice Just guys, incredibly enthusiastic. And... Uh, yeah, well, I, mean, I, I would be pretty enthusiastic if this was my gig, right? You're strapping this to uh, turbocharged um, Mercedes SUVs or Porsche Cayennes or um, uh, superboats or super yachts or uh, you name it, and you get to just just fucking fang the thing. Um, this this is crazy. These guys have to be really, really good. Some of the driving that these guys do is just insane. The possibility for death and dismemberment <laughs> working with these things even though all the crew is inside the car is just massive the, the, the possibility of, of of things going very wrong very very quickly is is huge so uh, i'm you know hats off to these guys okay well actually now we talk about it why don't we just jump yeah, right just in and, and actually uh talk to to the uh the guys uh, about the ultimate arm you are entering the red room so congratulations on both uh, the respect that you got in terms of awards from the Emmys, but also, you know, earlier from the uh, Academy. Uh, was that 2006, the Academy Award for Technical Achievement? Yeah. So um, I was just wondering, we, we love uh, camera tech and gear tech and stuff, and we're just fascinated by how your uh, ultimate arm kind of works. Maybe you could uh, just uh, explain to us, I guess starting with the rig that, that is sitting on top of, like, say, a four-wheel drive, um, how are you controlling the uh, the basically bounce factor? You've got a separated arm from rear of the arm, is that right? Yeah, basically it's a roof-based mounted crane, and you can travel it on anything from a from a tank, let's say, to uh, to a bus or on a boat, like we did in James Bond, or or uh, there's many different ways you can apply it. Off-road vehicles. But the interesting thing is uh, in the tilt axis, it's gyro-stabilized. And not only is it gyro-stabilized, the back of the crane is flexible. And that's why we won the Academy Award 
exactly because it's a superior advancement in this type of technology. And what it is is the back of the crane is flexible, and uh, it absorbs the energy and doesn't translate the image vibration to, a, to the end of the crane on a standard, typical-type crane. So that's the technical aspect. We can drive, we can uh, operate it from joysticks inside, you know, or you got a crew of a uh, camera operator and crane operator and camera assistant inside and a director inside, and uh, we have a wild time inside of there. So if, if the ultimate arm could uh, could t- could talk, you wouldn't believe what came out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you know what I mean, because because he got car, you got you know we're we're in the mix and the heat of it and he, on some of these movies we do and you got cars flying at you and all around you and. <laughs> you're, you know, running close to stuff at high speeds, it's uh, it gets exciting for sure. So the the gyro should remove presumably high frequency sort of vibration. Is the well, they, it's different. There's different stages. You know, there there's there's definitely different stages. You got the vehicle to the crane application at that at that level, and then you have the the gimbal on the end of the crane at that level. So uh, that's why the ultimate arm and lead head is such an excellent combination because the crane was designed to handle what the head could handle. So we have an advantage, we have an advantage, uh, by developing, you know, the head and the crane where a lot of our uh, competitors just do one or the other. And, and, uh, it's good for us to be able to, uh, have our own system. Because if I had some kind of, uh, gyro mount that, that uh, high frequency vibration would could be sort of removed, but you would still get a lot of bounce from any arm that's sitting out from a vehicle. Like, how far is the reach of the arm uh, on a safe? Oh drive? no, no, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It's the, that, that's the thing about it. it. It reduces the frequency of the oscillations as you're going over the bumps, right? Because the yeah. back end is flexible. The back end's flexible, so it doesn't matter the distance of, from the center point or whatever you get, how long you go. The difference is, is 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 the same thing as you put your thumb on the end of a butter knife, and if you pinch the, your thumb against the end of that butter knife and you hung it off the table, the rest of the butter knife off the table, and you hit it, it gets that yep. that type of frequency. So, with all other cranes that have that 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 have a stiff, rigid mount from front to back all the way out. It's, that's, the, that's inherently the nature of what happens. I don't care what kind of crane it is. You go out 75 feet, it gets that, it gets that frequency, right? But with the, with the back that's flexible, it, uh, it reduces the oscillation. It reverses it as, it as it's going up and down. So that's what uh, it nullifies the, the frequency. Yeah, because uh, that's the real innovation uh, on top of the sort of engineering because... As you say, almost everything else is going to only reduce the the sort of high frequencies, but that major kind of bouncing that you're going to get from something that's uh, sticking out from the vehicle, your, your arm is right. going to really address. Exactly. That's what it does. Yeah. That's the interesting thing. I, I came, Basically, we came up with the idea years and years ago, and uh, I was doing car rigs and car mounts and things like that, has a grip in the industry, and I would build these rigs. And uh, inherently, when you build a camera rig out from the vehicle, doesn't matter. Uh, you always have one direction that it gets the frequency in, and and uh, and it's it's hard to get rid of it. So when the when the car goes o- over a bump in the road, it it starts bouncing and it can't recover, and it, and it takes a long time for it to recover. So back in the day, I came up with a with a with a weight that transferred. It's like you know those shake weights they use to work out with, and they shake back and forth. Yep. With that idea idea inside of a canister, and I would put it on my car mounts, and it would it's the same idea as hanging a, a sand a shot bag, like a twenty pound shot bag, off of bungees in the middle. 
right? So that thing's going up and down on the direction I needed to go on, and it would reduce the frequency, and it would it would eliminate it, and it would lock on the shot again, and we would get car mounts. So I tra- I translated that into the crane. Uh, Leonard Chapman has uh, big, you know, Lenny Arms, as you're familiar with, these big, long cranes, and I happen to be fortunate to be dating his daughter for approximately six years, but... Uh, I kept going to him and telling him that uh, you need to, we need to move his weight up and down to try to stabilize it to stop that effect of the oscillation. And uh, and we came up with the idea to do it this way, three holes and So just in terms of some stats, how far can you reasonably get a uh, modern digital camera out from the vehicle? I mean, I say modern digital camera because obviously, uh, presumably, it's all function of weight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have uh, extension pieces that we built from 10 feet uh, and like 42 inches, so we can go out approximately 27 feet from the car. And of course, you're going to be limited in your speeds. It's not like you're going to do 100 miles an hour in this configuration, but but uh, you can definitely do it. The best, you know, the best is the normal configurations if you want to get the full use out of the vehicle. You know. So now I've seen a photograph of your. Uh, ultimate arm on top of a four-wheel mm-hmm. drive, but the four-wheel drive mm-hmm. seems to be on top of what looks like a crane in the middle of I don't know where. Uh, where, where are some of the places like that that you've actually placed the uh, the arm? I put on I put on basically every vehicle you can possibly think of. I did uh, on the roof of I did for Chrysler. I did. Uh, uh, we did 12 different cars in one day. I applied the crane to the roof of 12 different brands of cars in one day and drove it over the Richmond Bridge in San Francisco. So basically, you can put it on anything you want to put the ultimate arm. You just, whatever you dream up. So if you want it on an extreme off-road vehicle, we do that. With 36 inches of travel, it can go through big whoop-de-doos and, uh, and you can uh, drive the car aggressively, you know? So Or off-curbs. You can just drive while you're shooting, you know, go straight off a curb. We just did that on... Uh, on a new movie called R.I.P.D. I can't give it away, but <laughs> we went over some really rough stuff, and uh, and uh, it's you know it's working excellent. Is there any considerations in terms of the suspension? I mean, is there like while you can put on any? Oh, car, of course. You... Yeah, of course. You you know, obviously, you can't get as aggressive with your typical rental car. Uh, if you go out there and you, know, you get that style of a car, is what I'm talking about. Um, it's not going to be as aggressive. I mean, I was just in Uruguay and uh, and uh, and we had it on top of a uh, of a jeep and it and uh, it was had too many miles on it, if you know what I mean. And uh, so it was a little rough on the suspension. So you can't go. You just have to drive to the limits of the vehicle that you put it on. If it's on a boat, you got to drive the limits of that boat. You know that's why we have uh, stunt drivers and and uh, stunt guys that are handling the vehicles uh, out there while we're shooting. For the driver, presumably there is a whole different inertia from producing sort of a weight point that's been raised higher. Um, the center of gravity is higher on the vehicle, but uh, right. how much kind of weight are we talking I like, about? I like to I like to talk about uh, yeah, look at it like this: four fat guys on the roof of your car. <laughs> You know, if you get four fat guys on the roof of your car standing up on the roof, holding on to a pole, uh, that's about what you got on the roof. It's uh, anywhere from 750 pounds on up, you know, as you go with the, 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 long, length, uh, the long lengths. Uh, it's much higher, you know, 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, 1,500, depends on where you go, you know. Now, the actual head, of, the head at the end of the arm, are you controlling that yeah. via... Um, uh, wheels or a joystick or what's yeah, the Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah, the, the gimbal itself, the lead head, 
is controlled by joysticks or wheels. Uh, they're easily operated by both. It has a gyro vertical in the system that even though the, the Mitchell mount that the head is hanging from gets out of level, it helps you as you pan around to stay level with your horizon. So uh, the wheels work just fine. Uh, it's always better to use joysticks because on our joysticks, you can zoom and uh, dutch at the same time. So you can pan, tilt, zoom, and dutch, and, and it's really helpful. So let me just see if I've got this right. So I've got a camera out in front of the vehicle and I'm tracking some other vehicle along. Um, I Obviously, as you just said, I can dutch it. I can, of course, uh, pan it or tilt it. But then, of course, I can also elevate the arm up or down. And then I've got a kind of, of a course, left and right. That's pan. another guy. Right. That's another guy. Another guy has to operate the crane because you can't tell your heights and, uh, and stuff like that while you're looking through the, uh, through the viewfinder or through the uh, monitor. So the crane operator has to be separate from the from the camera operator. He can't; they can't intermix. So in a in a so vehicle, they just, yell, they just yell. They just yell at each other in the car. That's uh, some of the drama that goes on. So, so in the vehicle, could you reasonably have the stunt driver, the camera operator, the crane operator, and what room for maybe a DOP or a director? Focus puller, Focus a focus puller, and a and a director and a D, uh, DOP, depending on the vehicle we go in. Okay. Uh, and and all of that is controlled via cables, or is any of this wireless? Joystick. It's all joystick controlled electronically. More angle, more speed. Oh no, no, I understand that. But I mean, is it is it a cabled uh, run, or is any of this wireless? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's all hardwired to the in through the vehicle. Now the head can be removed. The left head can go on techno cranes or on. We have suspension mounts, three axis suspension mounts, and and uh, we're putting it on all kinds of things. But the head can go on different stuff, and it can be controlled wirelessly. So you can run it on a cable like we did in Dancing with Stars. Uh, they had a round stage episode, and there were the camera was flying all around, and uh, it was all done on a cable. So there's there's numerous ways you can use a lead head separate of the ultimate So you've done uh, just just to cover some of the productions you mentioned uh, some commercials earlier, but also you've and TV shows, but you've also done uh, a lot of films since the rig. When did when the rig first come online, and what are some of the productions you've worked on? Uh, some of the stuff we worked on lately, we did Gangster Squad. It's a Sean Penn movie coming out, and uh, and uh, we did one called R.I.P.D. Uh, we died in the second unit mostly directed by David Ellis and uh, that's with uh, Kevin Bacon and Ryan Reynolds and um, uh, come on George Kevin Bacon, Ryan Reynolds and Jeff Bridges and uh, yeah it's uh, action packed you know we did some just absolutely insane car stuff on and uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really exciting to see when that one's done and uh, let's see what other kind of movies what else we uh, did uh, lately, I did um, Perks of a Wallflower. It's a, kind of a drama, and uh, we did some of the, the. The director says we're going to make people cry at the end of the movie because <laughs> that was some of the. Uh, so we did the end of the movie for them. So it should be. It should be. Should be good. We'll see. So presumably, uh, the visual effects community really likes you because while it's possible to electronically stabilize a camera and obviously you know take out camera shake if there's actually vibration or or bounce in a camera the motion blur that is inherent in the camera moving even once you stabilize the picture that remains inside the frame so in other words if you shoot something shaky you might be able to stabilize it but the image is still going to suffer from the the motion blur or the loss of uh, effectively 
uh, sharpness that happens from the camera jiggling. And you're producing mm-hmm. a very stable plate upon which the effects teams can work on. Have you worked in a few effects films, haven't I, you? From I, like, I want to, I want to, I want, I want to, I want to just stop you for a second. I don't understand. I don't understand motion blur. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't understand motion blur. Meaning, we don't have it. We, when you use our system, you don't get motion blur, blur like that. It's that's more for. I mean, it depends on the on the type of camera you use, obviously. And uh, but uh, no, we being gyro stabilized, we we don't we don't we have that problem. And, and so, uh, so it's been used, I think, on one of the Batman films, uh, as well as uh, oh yeah, Earth. yeah. We just actually did uh, a bunch of stuff on Batman. We did a bunch of plates for him too. They like us to, to use us to do plates, and uh, we did Spider Man. We did uh, plates on Spider Man, and uh, and RIPD. We did a bunch of plates too for him. Uh, so we've been doing that a lot. Cowboys and Aliens. We uh, we worked on that movie. Uh, we have that on the off-road truck. It's 36 inches of travel. You can drive it really pretty serious off-road. So that was some intense uh, shots there. Um, something uh, Battleship. We did Battleship. We had the system out there in Hawaii, and uh, and uh, in Hawaii, and uh, we were out in the jungles, driving our thing around in the jungles. And uh, the, like I said before, if the ultimate arm could talk, <laughs> you could tell some really good stories. How many actual rigs have you got? If uh, people are interested in, uh... I built seven of them, right. and uh, currently have four working in the states. And uh, and there's, uh, well, actually, we have we're in Ireland now. We're going to Ireland, so we'll be there. We're in, uh, um, uh, we're in New York. We have a unit in New York that we leave over there, and then we have them uh, a couple of them here in the states in uh, California. And so while no doubt you have some specialist vehicles, it obviously sounds like you can easily ship it to a remote location and just get the vehicle. Oh, there. yeah, that's a great part. Yeah, that's the awesome thing about the Ultimate Arm. It comes in five boxes, and it's just uh, easily shippable. And then we strap it on to whatever we got where we're at, you know. And uh, people now are building custom cars and calling us and saying, hey, when you come out here, I got a car ready to go for you, <laughs> you know, ready to go. So it's, uh, it's starting to be a big hit, the Ultimate Arm, that's for sure. So if someone's wanting to use it, say, in a commercial, what's the um, kind of build time to get the rig up and running on a vehicle? Presumably it's like the uh, like a pre-light day, like you would do it the day before the shoot. Is that right? How long would it take to do? No, just that morning. Just hand us the camera, we bolt it on 20 minutes, we're ready to go. Really? So it's, uh, it's a pretty quick system, yeah. And then, uh, and then if you're shooting multiple days, we have an enclosed trailer that you just drive it in, park the thing overnight, leave the camera on, leave everything on, everything charges for you. And then uh, you're ready to go in the morning. So it's just turn on the switches in the morning. It saves a lot of time. That's why directors and producers now are using us on these features, and they're using us for every shot because it's so much quicker. Instead of setting up the camera on, on, a, on a set of the baby legs and then lining everything up and then picking all the cases up and driving them to the other side of the street to do something else, well, we just drive right across and shoot, and it's, uh, it saves them a ton of time. So, George, what was your background? How did you get into this in the first place? You've got quite a lot of experience in the industry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I was fortunate. I started out uh, at a young age as working as a key grip. And I was a grip. Actually, my, one of my first jobs, I was a key grip on a movie with uh, Tony Parks and Dee Wallace and uh, uh, Tony Curtis, I mean, Michael Parks and Dee Wallace. I ended up being a key grip on it, and I was 19 years old. So that was a, <laughs> that was a fun one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, no, I was a grip. I started doing rigging and, and car mounts and, and, you know, high speed, you know, mountain cameras on any cars and all different kinds of things. And then, uh, and then I got into this. And so just in finishing up, is there, uh, I mean, presumably from the 
what we're talking about. There isn't any particular limit on cameras that you can mount out there. Presumably, you've had IMAX and, and heavier cameras. Oh, no, on. yeah. No, no, you can mount anything. It's, it's, that's actually funny because a friend of mine, uh, we mounted these lipstick cameras, Replay XD, and uh, they're, they're little lipstick cameras, but they're HD. And, and uh, it's really awesome because cause the, cause it's such a small camera. I put four of them on there at different angles and stuff, but it's such a small camera and doesn't weigh but an ounce. And you got this big system, the ultimate arm using it, you know. Uh, it, was, it was fun. <laughs> well, from lipstick cameras. So you can go to any. So you can go to. So you can go to any. My point is, you can put anything on it you want. We just did IMAX. Uh, we're using an IMAX camera for the for. Uh, I think uh, yeah, for Batman they had an IMAX camera out there, and uh, you know, so it's for big to uh, big to small. The left head and open arm can handle it, no problem. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. And again, congratulations on the uh, credit that you've got from the industry for. Oh yeah, I appreciate it. That was a wonderful time. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was awesome, and to be, to be honored by people that understand, like I said, that, uh, what it takes to get there. You know, because uh, it takes a lot of work. You know, this stuff just doesn't fly off the shelves. You know. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. And uh, yeah, exactly. It's specialty sealed and. You know, I mean, I've been, we've had such great success with this system. It's just an honor to be honored. I mean, we did Fast and Furious 5, and Corey Eubanks, uh, who was also doing uh, the stunt coordinating on RFPD, he rolled that bus, and the ultimate arm was leading him, you know, getting him on camera. And that's like one of the, one of the best stunts the industry's ever seen, if you know what I mean, you know. <laughs> so, so it's awesome that uh, we're a part of that, and they recognize, you know, that we helped out and made a difference in television. So it's an honor to, to have that, that honor for sure. Well, again, thanks for talking to us. Really appreciate it. All right. Have a good day. Well, this thing's really sped up filmmaking in itself, you know, because you can, uh, modern heads now just do such amazing things and with software and they'll let you, literally let you, because they can do things where they counteract their pan. If you, you can swing the boom arm and they will counteract with the the head pan, if that makes sense. So you can almost have them, um, you can swing swing the boom around and it will almost be like you're doing a bit of a track. And plus, the, the, because these things are so stable, they're strapping them to really, you know, like off-road vehicles and not worrying about laying tracks and not really worrying about putting them on a crane that is on tracks. It's just basically, if you can put it on a vehicle, this thing's really smooth, just drive over broken ground, whatever you like, and, and you know, we'll just, we'll, just, we'll just put it on a car, forget putting it on a dolly. And uh, so, yeah. I like George's idea that, that on some productions, they've just got that rented for many more days than they need it for, simply because if they're shooting exterior on a street, it is just now the, you know, it's basically like a, a technocrane, wherever you want to go. So they just shoot, you want to shoot across the street, sort of then you just drive the car to the other side of the street and it's the camera platform. And you don't bother ever taking the camera off because up, down, left, right, in, out, pan, yeah. it's just faster to operate. I mean, I can imagine if you, Jace, were shooting like uh, something episodic or or maybe just narrative that didn't have a huge budget and you wanted to work with your actors really well, it would be a tremendous thing just to leave the camera up on there. And you know, if you knew you had a lot of shots uh, going down a street or in an environment, you know, where you would be otherwise taking a heck of a long time to lay track and, and move gear yeah, around. this is good for moving stuff. I mean, things like Technocrane, which has a telescopic arm, which you know very well, um, <laughs> um, is, has more in the drama side of things taken over from, from and reduced setup time because, I mean, I think 
the the Russian arm and the ultimate arms is more for just general tracking where it's quick and easy to set that up. But if you want to almost cover a whole scene you and and not have to move the camera over here and move the camera over here and then go high and go low, you can just keep this, something like a technocrane, you can keep the base of it in one spot and then you can do over the shoulders, wide shot, do a bit of a sweep around and because those arms go in and out, you can actually make it simulate a you know a thirty foot track. Like mm. You can actually boom in and, and boom out and do a linear um, a linear move. And I would so love to have a reason base. to buy a Technocrane. Yeah, keep the keep the base where it is and almost shoot whole scenes of dialogue and be quite precise with it and be quite accurate and not actually have to reposition the camera all the time. And it can really really speed stuff up. And that that's why, as he says, that this stuff generally spends a bit more time on a shoot than. Uh, the original schedule was because it's just fine that it's you know it's like a steady cam it kind of speeds you up once you get into the flow of working with it it can you can just end up shooting way more than you planned because it's you're ripping through the pages. Hey, can I ask you a question? What's the difference between a Luma crane and a Techno crane? Is that the extending arm bit, or is that? Uh, well, the new the Luma two is pretty much the same as a. I'm sure Luma will disagree, but Luma two is very similar to the Techno crane in that it telescopes. Uh, I'm sure I thought Technocrane does this, but certainly the Luma 2 will do that uh, track mode where you can basically put the base in one spot and say, I want to do a 30-foot or 40-foot straight track, and it will counteract. It will it, The arm will suck in as you swing the arm along, and then it will boom out again. And basically, from one fixed pivot point, you can put the camera in a straight line track in a straight tracking tracking. Basically, line. like do ten Soft. meters of straight track without having to lay any track, right? Yeah, or, yeah, easily, exactly, and can do again do that sort of counteracting mode whereby as you swing the arm, you don't have to constantly pan all the time to fight that. It will always just if you put if you want the camera straight ahead, if we swing swing the arm, the camera will always say straight ahead. So I'm not actually sure what the difference is technically too much between the new Luma and and Technocrane. They're all actually they're you're right because I remember talking to the guys on Hugo and I'm sure they used a Luma two on Hugo. Right. And for the very reason that they could do a straight vertical up and down and not have to worry about that's the, the other arc. thing you can boom straight up exactly which i'm sure a technocrane can do but i think maybe the luma 2's advantage is it'll do that vertically as well it does like the track mode so i don't know um i'm sure there it's a bit of a competition it's because it's almost coming down they're both pretty similar mechanically it's coming down to who has the, the you know who can develop the software and who's got the uh patents on you know what what on on, on what uh on what function, really. But uh, it's fantastic now to have a crane where you can basically say, I want to do a straight move up, and it won't do an arc because, you know, you can boom out as you go. You can rise literally very accurately from from ground zero, 30 feet in the air, and be exactly dead center over the point that you started from. Very clever. Yes, mm, we like them. We like mm. cranes. We like cranes. Yeah. <laughs> you especially... I, I just got to find that footage of when I smashed the the uh, technocrane. Jace, I broke the technocrane. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Ah, uh, yes. Um, okay, so uh, so cool. Well, uh, again, thanks to the Ultimate Arm guys for for that. Um, so now to switch our attention to uh, Light Iron and uh, Michael Gioni, who is uh, just a real kind of get it guy he's you might have seen him at one of some of the red events he's spoken there um though i should imply that he only does red stuff because they are pretty much uh, camera agnostic though he is well known in the red community because he's done a lot of stuff at education and uh 
and a lot of processing of clips. And they're a bit of a Pablo user, which is unusual because uh, not most of the people I deal with aren't Pablo users, but there you go. Um, but they really, really have done a lot of work in taking post on set, uh, turning around what was, as you'll hear in the interviews, I, I refer to them as owlies. Uh, he calls them um, nowlies. I think he calls them, um, or something like that. But uh, it's this idea that uh, you don't have to wait overnight to get your dailies and uh, that dailies are a bit of a misnomer. And the other thing is, you know, the Muppets uh, are really interesting in terms of, you know, the green screen problems of shooting uh, and getting really good stuff happening when you've got puppets which have those sort of unique colours. It's a very vibrant kind of environment. Not only that, but... Uh, his general philosophy on uh, how to you know work in the industry and do stuff is really really interesting, and I, I really actually like his uh, his eye. At the end of the interview, we get into a discussion, Jace, about the fact that uh, that uh, Michael does photography, and if you get a chance to see his work, I don't know if his site's back up. He uh, does some really nice photography work, as I think most of the people we respect tend to do these days. Excellent. Well, yeah, it's good. You know, it, it, if you're particularly if you are involved in color or you know involved in giving something a look then, uh, yeah, knowing what a good look is doesn't hurt. Well, let's cross to that interview now that I recorded uh, earlier with Michael. So let me just start by saying thanks so much for joining us because we do appreciate it. Okay. Um, where did you first get involved in the project? I understand uh, that it was about, what, two-thirds of the way through Pirates of the Caribbean, is that right? That's right, yeah. Um my original, um, I, I became friends with um, a couple of the Disney folks that have been really not only just friends but also mentors, Leon Silverman and Jeff Zaka, and they had a lot to do with some massive progression in the Disney digital transition, and, and, and more specifically towards file-based. And when the decision was made to move forward with the red on Pirates 4, um, you know, that, that was a, you know, a major accomplishment, not just for Red or the MX Sensor or anything like that. I mean, it was big for D Cinema. It was big for 3D. It was big for Disney. It was big for film. It was big for Bruckheimer. I mean, it was just, it, it, it made so many firsts. I don't know if people quite realize how significant a movie that was, but it was really significant because it was going well and dailies looked good and everyone was pretty you know, happy with the stability, that really opened it up for Muppets to go uh, red. And so it was sort of like the, the piggybacking of Pirates made sense to make Muppets go red. And the camera that you were shooting on at this point was the Red One. Was there any epic use at all on it? This was the MX Sensor. So we did have the MX sensor, but it was just before, it was right when Red Gamma was starting to be explored um, and, and Red Color, Red Color 2. These, these were all brand new and they actually weren't even, I think, uh, uh, you know, they weren't even out just yet. And it was um, really interesting because it shows that the development of raw image capturing allows for an unending, uh, a never-ending evolution. And that's, that's really important because a lot of times camera firmware is required in order to improve a camera's quality. Um, but with raw image capture, it's the, it's the post firmware that allows us to get more out of it. So, you know, what, what, what people sometimes forget, 
is I can get better pictures out of a red image from four years ago. And of course, I can't change the exposure or change the DP's choices, but we can actually suck more information out of it today with today's science. So it really helps raw, it helps validate raw as another level of future proofing. Well, I'm going to loop around and go through the technical stuff with you in a minute. I want to go through the sort of precise technical stuff. I think that's of great interest. But I, I also want to point out, um, we spoke to the guys uh, that were involved in the visual effects for this film, uh, which, you know, completely independent of them knowing that I was going to be speaking to you um, and at Look Effects. And, and, and we asked them about what they thought of the red camera, obviously them having no thought that we had any particular um, interest in it. Um, what they said, which I thought was really interesting, is that they found that in this project, this red project, they had no compression artifacts, that it went incredibly smoothly. In fact, it went so smoothly that it was like unprecedented how well that it went and how cleanly it came. And they drew attention to the fact that the production and stuff upstream of them, which is I, you guys, really had, had your act together. So I guess that's a really good uh, back, you know, like invert sort of accidental compliment. But it seemed that you did develop the digital workflow very, very cleanly right the way through. And, and in fact, you never went to tape, did you? Never. Never. Yeah, it, that is a very nice thing for them to say. Uh, that's great. Those guys are fantastic, and the work they did was spectacular. This is a film that I think a lot of people won't realize. It's about maybe two-thirds visual effects, maybe half to two-thirds visual effects, which is a huge number in 1,800 cuts. You know, there's about a thousand visual effects shots. More, you know, so it's it's pretty serious stuff in terms of VFX pipeline. Um, so again, is your is your question basically, is it a comment or a question about the workflow on, on how smooth it was? Well, my question was that you did a lot of work to get this workflow smooth and to remain fully tapeless. That this is yeah. uh, like a very comprehensive solution from LightOn. Well, the, the, the honest truth for us to say is that um, the more you have a team that understands file-based technology and agrees with it and dives all the way in, the better everything goes. There are a lot of situations where people will devil into file-based cameras, like we'll shoot on the RED or we'll shoot on the Alexa, or, but we're going to go to tape or we're going to do some sort of film LUT or we're going to do some sort of, you know, DP lights or something like that in order to modify it from a file-based raw camera to a video-based or film-based end workflow. This is where RED fails. This is why people say RED has bad skin tones, RED doesn't post well, RED is very slow. I mean, all insert complaint here is basically because people don't follow the manufacturer's recommended workflow. And the same thing can be said with Airy or... Or, or S65 or Viper or Phantom or, you know, anything. I mean, there are ways to break any format. But on Muppets, I, I can't say other than we simply did on Muppets what we do on every movie. That's it. I mean, I, I have movie after movie after movie um, basically is, is like the Muppets, but it's because Disney and Look Effects and the director and Don the DP, everyone got behind the workflow and let us manage the workflow. And if one entity can manage a workflow and take responsibility for it, everything goes fantastic. The problem with workflows is what um, some people know are, call snowflake workflows. 
every single snowflake is unique and different. And um, this is uh, something Leon Silverman at, at Disney is always, you know, kind of challenging me about. He's like, we can't, you know, we don't want to have all these snowflake workflows. We want to have workflows that work for a whole bunch of movies. And that's the key. File-based will never have a rock-solid um, reputation until you can insert any camera into the same workflow. And that's what I've been struggling with for years. And I'm getting very close, uh, if not I've achieved, one workflow that works for any camera. And that's really been my goal for a couple of years. Um, and Muppets is just an example of people that let us uh, run the workflow from end to end. Another way to look at that, Mike, is you've got to make sure that the people who are helping author the workflow are people who are experts in all the areas of the filmmaking process to a degree. In other words, some people will author workflows that only work on the production and then they're off the show. Some people will author workflows that are only in the finishing, but they don't have anything to do with the production. These are disjointed workflows. They are snowflakes. They are not continuous. What Light Iron does is we manage the workflow in pre-production, production, visual effects pulling, color science, archiving, DI, and distribution. And by having one entity assume responsibility for every major component of the process means that the studio, the production company, the filmmakers can basically go to one source and that source, if they're up to the challenge, is able to, uh, you know, fly a much smoother flight. And, and, I, and I believe The Muppets is a good representation of what we've been able to give many films over the last few years. Well, let's step through that workflow now. Um, the cameras are shooting on, I think, Red Code 36, is that right? And you're basically shooting a, like a 16 by 9 4K image? That's correct. Red Code 36, which is, you know, an average, below average codec for red today, you know. It's, it's, not, that, it's not that high of a quality, um, but it just shows you the compression artifacting, uh, you know, lack of compression artifacting. That codec is so solid. Uh, red Code 36 clocks in at under 150 gigabytes an hour. So, so how does 36 it, on a Red 1 compare to the compression on an Epic? What are they equivalent to? Red Code 36 is about the equivalent of 9 to 1, 9.5 to 1, somewhere around that area. So it's, it's right between 9 and 10 to 1. And no one with an Epic shoots 9 or 10 to 1. It's very rare for people to do that. But that's really what you're getting um, in terms of that, which is why, not to get too far off the subject, but it's another reason why Scarlet is so well designed for every user, because if a Red Code 36 at 4K can produce pictures like Muppets, which I think people will be pleased with, uh, a Scarlet at 7 to 1 or 6 to 1 is far superior to Red Code at 4K. So, you know, it, it really sort well, of... Well, in fact, Spider-Man... Uh, Spider-Man that hasn't been released yet was shooting seven to one, so exactly, um, yeah. And but I, I, what I found kind of interesting, and I'm I think I'm right in saying this: did the guys on set shoot to cards or to drives? Uh, cards. We basically use cards. Why? And why the heck the, shoot to cards? Sorry. <laughs> well, the cards, you know, sixteen gig cards was it was mostly cards, and 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 this was a crew that's so familiar with film. I mean, it really is the the film 
style of data management. And we actually prefer shorter um, record media in terms of the post-process. Now, because they're organized and they're, they're doing their jobs, shooting nine minutes, ten minutes on a card that's 16 gig is actually okay. You know, it actually isn't that big of a problem. Um, and we just kept recycling the cards. But here's the other funny story. On Pirates, we shot cards, and it was the Pirates, when they started wrapping second unit, those cards got pushed to Muppets. So Disney bought cards for Pirates, and we were essentially using a lot of Pirates cards. So this is another perfect example of a very smart studio making an investment in one movie and then moving that investment to another, which is really, really hats off to Disney for being able to do that. So now, one a really critical part of LiDAR, and I think you and I discussed this uh, at an NAB a little while ago, is the move for thinking of post as actually not being post at all, but being really on set as where it all is, uh, is increasingly at. And to that extent, you have a thing called Outpost. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, Outpost is really the manifestation of what we consider modern-day file-based post-production. We put the word post in the name because we want people to realize a computer on a cart is not magic. Anyone can put a computer on a cart, and a lot of people should and do. But the concept of Outpost is not just a computer on a cart. It's really the post-production laboratory being outside of the post house. And that's where the name comes from, and that's, li that's literally what it is. We want people to put post-production where they want it. For some people, it is on set. For some people, it's in a hotel room at base camp. For some people, it's in a camera truck. For um, the Criminal Minds show we do, it's in the edit room. For some people, it's in the production office. I mean, it, it, it really can go where it's convenient. And that's what I believe post-production is going to morph into. It's going to be put the lab where it works for me. Put the lab where this movie or TV show wants it to be, and that's actually the right place and the best place for a lab. Outpost is designed to be mobile, but they have all the horsepower you need for triple backups, for transcoding color correction, Avid Final Cut, ProRes, Premiere files, web files, iPad files, metadata tracking, reporting, you know, all that stuff. I mean, stuff that's not super glamorous, but the fact that it's portable makes it very practical. Well, I mean, not to be cutesy about it, but one of the things I thought was funny is you renamed Dailies. Oh, right. We, we named Dailies uh, to Dailies. Yeah, to Dailies is one of our kind of fun things. It's actually an iPad application, but the whole idea is we wanted to give people Dailies today. But what's weird is the word Dailies, which I, I know in Europe they call it rushes. I don't know where the name Dailies came from, but... It, it's a misleading word because dailies are two or three or four days behind, depending on where you are, and that doesn't make any sense to me. So we needed to rename it to actually represent footage you shot today, so we called it to dailies. Um, and that's actually been uh, something that, that people remember, and they now realize that a daily has to be something. For a daily to be really, really helpful, um, it helps when it's actually uh, is proximal as the same day you shot it. And on Muppets, I, um, you know, we were able to not only produce same-day dailies, but we, had, um, we worked with Jerome Hendricks, who has like this really cool portable trailer, and um, it has like a six-foot screen in it. And so we could actually project those to dailies 
on the set, wherever they were at lunchtime, and they could review everything at a pretty high fidelity quality. I mean, the ProRes codec is one of the most efficient codecs out there, especially in the MPEG family. And that codec produces incredible pictures at a very small space for reviewing dailies. And, you know, a lot of people have criticized digital filmmaking wrongly and saying, oh, if you shoot digital, you don't get to watch dailies anymore. And people aren't projecting dailies. I think that's ridiculous. People that don't project dailies only do so because they don't want to spend the time or money or effort. It has nothing to do with it being digital. If anything, digital empowers dailies projection far simpler and more cost-effective than film. So blame me. I've, I've heard that so many times that, oh, nobody projects dailies anymore with these digital cameras. I'm like, well, that has nothing to do with the camera. But the camera's stupid. It can't fight back when it's being criticized. So we have to stick up for it once in a while. <laughs> hey, um, tell me this. The, uh, the process on set is presumably just red rocket card accelerated. But yet I think I heard you once recently point out that you'll squeeze every last uh, sort of millimeter of stuff out. Do you do the final transfers as Red Rocket or is it just used for, I mean, is that in your opinion professionally uh, the right way to go to, to do the final transfer out or do you not need to do a final transfer because the R3Ds are going to the color grading session? Ah, good question. Well, I do compartmentalize um, the workflow so that the best thing for the set and dailies is done, and that might not always be the best thing for finishing. And that changes from movie to movie, show to show. So the first thing I want to point out is the red rocket and the color science surrounded in red Cine X is what we use on set, and that is the absolute best thing to do. Anyone that's color correcting and preparing dailies outside of red Cine and red rockets, I would say... You're not doing anything to harm the footage, but you're just not taking full advantage of Red's support and Red's actual tool set. So there's no reason not to. Um, but what we do is we process those files, and we do what's called a cascade render, or at least we call it a cascade render. And what it means is it's processing the top file first, so let's say your highest quality output, and then it processes a slightly lower quality version off of that, and then a lower quality version off of that, and a lower quality version off the, after that. And the whole idea, and we've been getting better and better at this over the years, um, the whole idea is that you only have to use the rocket once per clip, and you can get everything else out of it, but you're using like cascade, like water falling down a waterfall, you're using that to produce the other elements. So the rocket is only being used to process each clip once and you don't have to use it to do anything else. Does that make sense? Yeah, now is that because you get speed improvements because obviously you're, you're dealing with smaller data each time and also because we're less concerned about, I mean, strictly speaking, we're just less concerned about image quality as we move down that pipe, that cascade. Right, right, there's that, but it's also because the rocket is the most horsepower intensive and it's the slowest. So when you have a movie like The Muppets, we had to make eight deliverables. It was three copies two, uh, uh, three copies, final cut for viewing dailies on set, Avid for editorial, an H.264 for an intranet, an H.264 for an internet, and an H.264 for an iPad. So it was three different H.264s with different watermarks, uh, ProRes, and then uh, DNX HD 115, and then three copies. So that's eight versions that have to get managed. If you had to do all that through a rocket and, you know, copying programs, 
you couldn't do that very quickly. It would take a long time or take a whole bunch of computers. But if you can cascade it, you can multitask. And the multitasking key allows you to always keep a new slot available so that a new take gets in and gets in the pipeline and runs down like a, a, a Ford assembly line. That's the whole idea. And, and that cascading can happen on a single computer or two computers as we often network together. And again, this is a process I think will become more popular with software tools in the future. But right now, most people think of files similar to how they think of film and tape. If you want to make a copy, you make one copy. If you want to make two, make a second copy. And you make a dub and you play it out. But with cascading, if you want to make five copies, you just make them all at the same time. Yeah. And you just, you just thread your computer so that it's customized or, or, or built so that it can do them all concurrently but you have to really steer how the computer's going to think about everything in order to do that without creating a bottleneck. People that bottleneck uh, or people that do this in an incorrect configuration will actually end up with slower turnarounds because it'll take longer to render because it just slows everything down. So drive speed, processing power, RAM, cards, networking, and then order of events all come into question. And I'm constantly changing that, trying to figure out what the perfect version is. And, um, you know, that, that's what it takes in order to optimize this. Now, I found that if I want to get the absolute sharpest thing I possibly can, I should do a software sharp export from a Red Cine Pro X rather than a, even a Red Rocket. Um, not that I'm necessarily saying absolute sharpness in this sense is even necessarily desirable because um, obviously a lot of people uh, need to understand what we're talking about here is at the last like 0.1%. But do you find that? Do you find any difference with a software for sort of premium sharpness? Absolutely. Um, the rocket on and off does change the result. And the hardware and software decode are going to be there. There's going to be small variations between them. What most people in most films have to calculate is what is the um, what is the risk versus gain? If you did a rocket debayer and you can do it about 24 times faster, um, is that 24 times speed improvement worth it over, um, you know, gaining a little bit of sharpness or clarity or something like that? And that's something that I can't answer, you know, it, it, you have to decide that from project for project. There are some projects we use the rocket on and some projects we don't, and that's just the nature of, of the beast. I can tell you that on dailies, everything was done with the rocket. When it got down to the visual effects and conform of this movie, we didn't really use the rocket as much. We did go for a software debayer, um, and that was sort of critical in managing the process to the highest quality possible. So I don't want people to think that if they say the Muppets look so good, it's because they didn't use the rocket. That's not what I'm trying to say. The rocket probably wouldn't have changed any perceptible difference when you get down to seeing it on the big screen. It probably wouldn't have mattered. But when it comes to some of the visual effects people, yeah, there's a be a, a, an advantage to being able to have the cleanest picture possible, not having to denoise. Um, Don lit this movie so beautifully, and it was the first time that we were able to use the Red Log film curve because Red Log film had not existed um, prior to uh, sort of the end of 2010. So we didn't really have access to Red Log film, which with Red Log film, and I remember early on in my Muppets pre-production saying, I really want to go with Red Log film and Red Color 2. 
and I talked with um, uh, Janet, who was the uh, visual, visual effects uh, supervisor, who did a fantastic job. And we were able to use Red Log Film for the first time, and it totally paid off. And I think some of the visual effects people saying that the, the, the images were really helpful is, one, they got uh, software debayer, two, they got Red Log Film, three, they got Red Color, two, and four, Don just knows how to shoot a picture. And when you put those combinations together, you end up with a perfect combination to feed, uh, you know, a thousand plus visual effects. What was the um, ISO that it was primarily rated at? Do you know? Was there a primary? Yeah, this was mostly shot at 640 to 800. Um, I think he pretty much left it around the 800 mark most of the time. He might have gone down to 640 sometimes, but you know, this movie, a lot of it, it's really beautiful. You got to watch for it. It's it, it's so wonderful. A whole bunch of this movie is kind of lit, like an old Orson Welles film. It's very classic, and there is some incredible classic cinematography here. It doesn't look like a brightly lit comedy all the time, which is how some of the advertising and trailers, which we, we did, I know they sometimes make it look like a, a flashy comedy that's shot like on a 14-millimeter master prime and everything's in focus. That's not what this movie is. When you get in there, you're in a cinematic experience, and it looks it has depth, it has texture, it has this classic lighting that it really shocked me how um, beautifully it was coming out. And I know the vision with Don and James was to create an image that was classic, and it has some of those techniques, um, and that really, I think, will draw audiences in, and it'll show off the red camera is not just a daylight bright uh, camera. It, it, it can be a very, very deep focus, very shallow, very, very dim and softly lit camera. And um, that's really, really important. I think it comes out on the Muppet screen. The, um, yeah, the, the, I think the thing does look good. You mentioned the Orson Welles thing, but I mean, you know, Citizen Kane has amazing uh, clarity and focus into the depth. It's certainly not a shallow depth of field film, <laughs> almost, uh, almost the, the, you know, the, the uh, poster child of the exact opposite. Um, can you talk to me, though, about this idea of texture? Because one of the things that is apparent, both talking to the visual effects guys and just looking at the film, is that the red is picking up uh, not just colours, and you touched briefly on the skin tone issue, but also just actually a lot of the, the I'm going to call it felt textures, that obviously the Muppets have as their, uh, as their you know, primary stuff. Obviously a lot of hair as well, or, or fur. Can you talk about that texture coming through? Yeah, um... I recently saw like a re-released, remastered version of Demi's movie from 1990, Silence of the Lambs. Now, I hadn't seen this movie in the theaters. I was, I was too young, but I had always seen it on like maybe VHS or DVD or something or maybe on television. But recently I got to see a remastered version. And what blew my mind is there's about 10 or 12 sequences in the movie where the characters look directly at the camera on what seems to be like a hundred millimeter lens where their nose is out of focus, their eyes are in focus, and their ears are out of focus again. So it's extremely uh, compressed. And when I'm watching this, I can see the makeup, I can see stubble, I can see wrinkles, I can see Jodie Foster has sort of a, a like a a damage in the white of her right eye, things that I never noticed before. And I'm watching this, and I, I realize everyone that keeps talking about film is soft and digital is hard 
is totally wrong. And the reason that is, is film needs to be compartmentalized into two categories. And I think people just say there's film and then there's digital or something like that. But really, film has two worlds. It has an acquisition side and it has an exhibition side. When we look at film in an exhibition world, that's where the softness comes in. That's where people are seeing softness and, and, and creaminess and a lot of the loss of resolution that, that, that is aesthetically pleasing. That's where that goes. But if we go back to the original negative, there isn't softness there. The negative contains a tremendous amount of data, and that amount of data can be translated if people have a venue in which it will be used and handled. And that's why a film from 21 years ago like Silence of the Lambs, only today are we seeing the true resolution of that original negative, and it has more characteristics of what I would say high-resolution digital cameras than it does low resolution softness that sometimes people say. So that's a long way to kind of describe how I feel about film resolution versus red resolution. And that is, I believe they are the same. And what's been robbing people of resolution is film prints, not film negative. And they have to realize that the more they look at negative and high res negative scans of 35 millimeter and 65 millimeter, they're not going to say this looks really soft. They're going to say this looks great. It just looks fantastic. But, but softness isn't one of its characteristics. That is to say, in the Muppet movie, it's going to seem like there's tremendous amount of resolution, but there's not a ton of sharpening. It doesn't have sharp, sharp edges. It just has texture and a three-dimensional quality. That is what I think is one of the best characteristics of the technical side of this story. People will see the tones and the textures of these characters, which actually makes them come out of the screen in, in, a, in a way that I don't think, um, I think very few, you know, very few things can, because in an animated movie, nothing, texture isn't really uh, viewed the same way. And in a real life movie where people wearing shirts and sweaters, sometimes you see it, but not often. But these Muppets are like, they look like carpets sometimes. They look like rugs. They look like sweaters. I mean, it's so cool because you, you know those feelings when they touch your skin. And it's cool to think that that is going to translate for the first time because we sampled this movie at such a high resolution and on a digital print, uh, the image is really, really there for everyone to see. You, you mentioned Red Color 2 a, a couple of times. Um, moving away slightly from the Muppets for a second, can I get your opinion on Red Color 2? Because there's a lot of interest in the ACES workspace, and yet uh, Graham from Red would argue that Red Color 2 is a better color space to be working in even than ACES, though you can export ACES out of uh, Red City Pro X. Uh, what's your opinion? What's your, where does your company fall? Well, I'm, I'm in favor of exploring all the options. And the situation surrounding ACES is that I believe on paper, ACES does make a lot of sense and it has a lot to offer for the digital cinema community. A lot of that is simply because there are so many cameras and so many different workflows that ACES may help a lot of people sort of streamline that. But on the other hand, it's not something that I'm necessarily jumping out at because in terms of ACES, I actually have workflows that I know are 
superior and they're very, very solid. And so I'm not like out there looking for a solution. You got to imagine if there are people that struggle with color science and they struggle with a way to get the most out of A camera, B camera, C camera, then the ACES workflow is designed to help streamline that process. I believe that that is often going to be seen um, more with facilities that come from a traditional film or tape or print emulation background. But in terms of our experience in file-based management and raw image capture and linear color science, uh, the ACES workflow doesn't really offer us a tremendous amount of advantage. We already sort of have those things down, and I don't have DPs really concerned about that. They're not really worried about color flow or color science or something like that. Um, so in terms of ACES, on paper, it looks really good. In practice, it's still not proven. And I want to make sure that everyone that listens to this realizes that ACES is still somewhat in, is being developed. It, it actually isn't somewhat developed. It's still in development. So I have to reserve some judgment. And I think everyone should reserve some judgment until the ACES um, you know, final decisions are sort of made, published, and most importantly, proven. But until they're made, they're published, and proven, I, we have to reserve some sort of judgment for them. But in the meantime, we have to still be making movies. And the way in which we're making them, uh, I would say our movies get better and better each year. I, I'm really pleased to say that every couple months, I can say my best work is this this project. And this month, um, it's the Muppet movie. A month ago was this movie we did um, called Shanghai America Town. And then next month it'll be Dragon Tattoo when that comes out in December. I mean, every movie we do, we push the envelope a little further, we explore a little bit more, and we get better. And, you know, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Like, the, the tools that everyone makes are meant to be mastered, and then, uh, you know, rules are sometimes meant to be broken, and we're supposed to experiment. And I think... Um, I've got a team and a technology and a sort of talent that's able to, not afraid to explore those types of distances. Um, if I had to say what will the Light Iron Aces official position be, I would say that we'll use our own modified version of Aces because I have some components of Aces that I like and there's some components I don't like. So I'll probably use the stuff I do and not use the stuff I don't like and then make my own modified version. So we talked about onset acquisition and stuff and the uh, color science. Um, the, I'm a big fan of the DOP on this film, Don Burgess, and I'm wondering, was he involved in the DI? Can you talk about that? Yeah, Don Burgess uh, really hit this one out of the park. I mean, he tends to do that pretty regularly, but I really think he did on this because this was a challenging movie to shoot. Um, if you saw what it takes to shoot the, um, the Muppets and the puppeteers and a camera in a dolly shot with interacting backgrounds and foregrounds. I mean, it's, it's, it's a comedy of errors, but somehow they keep pulling it off. They're awesome. But yes, Don was involved in the DI pretty heavily. Um, when Don was, when the movie was starting to get picture lock and there were some test screenings and some trailers, that's when we started working with Don. And what really worked with that is um, our colorist that did the film here, Corinne Bogdanowitz, she was able to start um, pre-color correcting and pre-grading and getting the movie sort of in, in the right spot. Um, and because we use Quantel Pablos, we're able to take lists from Avid in the form of AAF. So we're not using EDL or something skeletal like that. We're actually reading the Avid timeline, which is, is, is an AAF sort of uh, language. 
And that way, every time the cut would change, we were still able to very rapidly, I mean, within sometimes minutes, we could give Don and Corinne the most updated cut. So they were always working with updated cuts in color, even though the film hadn't been locked yet. And that's really important in in movies with lots of visual effects, in movies that are moving quickly and have uh, release dates quickly approaching, um, and movies that you want to give the creatives as much time as possible in the cutting room. Most of us in post complain when a movie isn't locked and it's delivered to us. But honestly, if it's not locked, it probably just needs a little more work, but we have a job to do. And Quantel's made that very easy because we can do change list management that's very simple. So Corinne and Don would work with a reel. The next day, a revision would come in. They wouldn't even know the difference. It would just automatically update, and they could keep setting their looks. And then they'd go through and build looks throughout the whole movie. And then Don would let Corinne explore that, probably on her own a little bit. And then he'd come in and make adjustments. The director, James Bobbin, who just also hit this one out of the park, he would then come in and sort of review the work, but most of the time he left it up to Don to set the looks. And when Don wasn't available, his son Michael would come in and help us out. So we always had someone very close to the project involved in the DI, and Don was responsible for sort of supervising the bulk of the DI color, um, and Corinne was responsible for sort of searching for all those looks, and then sculpting them and, and working with that. Um, and again, in a movie, and this is a really important concept in DI, and I want to make sure that everybody understands this, there is this myth going around. It's been going around for a while, and every time I see it written, I, I kind of shake my head. The myth is, if you want to be, if you want the best quality movie with red, you have to be working with the R3D files in DI. This is untrue. Not only is it untrue, it's literally impossible to do on every project. And not only is it impossible to do on every project, it will become more and more impossible in the future. Why? Because the trend for movies continues to expand on the amount of visual effects per film. And the amount of visual effect-based films continues to grow. By that we know that the ability for visual effects people to take an R3D in, which they may or may not choose to do, likely means they will not give you an R3D out because we don't want to introduce any additional compression into a process. So if it's a red file in, which is great, it's an uncompressed file out. Whatever that uncompressed file out is varies, and there are many appropriate flavors to choose, but they're not going to render an R3D. In fact, today it's impossible to write an R3D. You can only read it. So that means that in DEI, on most of the films we work on, R3Ds are actually not used because we can't use them because if more than half the film is visual effects, I have uncompressed RGB frames coming in as the movie. So I want people to know that when you're looking at Muppets, when you look at Social Network, when you look at Haywire, when you look at um, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, you're not seeing R3Ds color corrected. You're seeing R3Ds debared into RGB. That RGB is then color corrected from there. And that is honestly the best way to do it. So what was your mastering format that you're getting back from the VFX? Were they mastering their effect shots at 2K in a DPX or were they, what were you getting back? 
Yeah, this movie stuck with the traditional uh, log DPX flavor. So all of the files that were debayered were debayered in red log film, red color two. And then we zeroed out a number of the metadata fields, but not all of them. There are some fields you want to maintain that have to do with sort of color, temperature, tint, ISO, flood, and things like that. But there are other elements that you don't want to keep because you don't want any destructive values to it. That's the beauty of what Graham did with FedLog Film is he allows us to open up the files into um, like an RGB file, like a DPX file, and maintain 100% of the bits and the, um, the uh, basically 100% of the, the dynamic range. That's what RedLog Film is designed to do. And I bet Graham will continue to refine it and make it even better. But today, I have no complaints. In doing that, we give the red, the red log film files were given to visual effects as 10-bit DPX 2K. Um, and then those files were delivered to us. You know, they trickle in every couple weeks, every couple days, as we would get more and more shots. Then when we did our files, the, the, the 33 or 40% of the movie that was coming from our 3Ds that weren't visual effects, we import those, convert them in the R3Ds into the Pablo, into red log film, red color 2, and we would reset the same metadata values as the DPX files that were coming from visual effects. So what we get is 75, maybe 60, 70% of the movie is visual effects, and then 30 or 40% of the movie is red files, and they all look the same, and they all have the same dynamic range characteristics. And you have to remember, when we cut this and conform this together, you might have a checkerboard scenario, visual effect, R3D, visual effect, R3D. Well, those visual effects, some of them went halfway across the world, and some of them were just in the red files that came off the drive on the outpost card. And they're going to checkerboard right next to each other. You can imagine that if the color science wasn't managed or wasn't identical or there was some sort of problem with the DPX file versus an R3D, you would absolutely notice when those shots touch each other, which they do all over this film. Yet you won't notice the discrepancy because red log film and 10-bit or 16-bit DPX are designed to take red R3D files and uh, cut them together and not have any problems. And that's exactly what happened. Did you find the main advantage of shooting 4K was just that the 2K looked so good, or was there a lot of blow-ups and adjustments? Um, there was very few blow-ups on this movie. Every movie tends to have a couple, and it's nice to kind of get away with what you can get away with. But honestly, on the Muppet movie, um, it was mostly shot 4K because we knew we could downsample and get the best 2K results. Um, at the time, making a 4K movie wasn't really required and wasn't really a big talk. Today, that's changing. If we were in pre-production for a Muppet movie today, um, I know there'd be some major discussions for a 4K finish, which I'm in favor of. But um, at the time, it was felt that the Disney's um, Muppet kind of franchise didn't need to get 4K ready just yet. And this movie looked so good because it was lensed so well and the camera did oversample so well. Um, I don't think people would... I, when you see it, if you see it on a good screen, you're going to go, how could that not have been 4K? I've already had people email saying, I can't believe that was 2K. But, you know, that is not an advertisement for shooting in 2K. I know yeah. you know that, Mike, but a lot of people think what I just said means the Scarlet's overkill and, you know, that the, the, we should still shoot on the F-35. It's like, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. The oversampling of the red 
allows us to have the most enhanced 2K experience. If it wasn't for that, we would never have a benefit in 2K. That's where 35 works too. 35's oversampling in a 4K uh, negative makes for a better 2K result. And so yeah. it's critical to realize that even though this movie is projected in 2K, it came from a 4K source, every bit we could possibly suck out of that 4K file went into the 2K, and had we shot it at any lower resolution, the textures, the depth, and the separation, and um, just the overall clarity would not have transmitted. And you know what, there's one more component that people always forget about when talking about resolution, and that's generation loss. I understand that people think that digital is lossless, but digital isn't lossless. It's not necessarily lossless. And um, there's a difference between a clone and a copy. And basically what you have in terms of red and file-based media is the version that you get on, say, a Blu-ray or a, um, a, a digital projector or something like that, that's not necessarily the closest version uh, as it could be, to the source. Some studios uh, will go down the tape, and, and I even know you know, a lot of movies that uh, were unfortunately forced into tape or they're forced into 1080 or they're blown back up or something like that just by bad ideas and bad, bad, bad planning, bad leadership, and mistakes and accidents. In terms of generations, we need to go with 4K because it... It shows that if we start at a higher source, when you make copies, when you make clones, when you make conversions, when you transform, if you start at a better place, it's obviously going to look better at the end. And I think people forget that. If I take a 4K file and make a 2K uncompressed master and transform that directly to an iTunes H.264, which is one of the steps we did, that means the iTunes H.264 is only one step away from the original R3D. It only had to go through one transform. That's why the H.264 looks so good. But if I took a 4K file, did an uncompressed 2K, then dubbed that to tape, and then dubbed that, sound converted that to DigiBeta, and then converted that to uh, iTunes, all of a sudden we have three generations and three transforms and three additional compression changeovers, and that lowers the quality tremendously. So 4K is really critical because it actually, you know, people that are saying, uh, I know there's a lot of people that think Scarlet 4K is totally unnecessary and overkill and we don't need it, we didn't ask for it. It's like, ma'am, you you, if you really saw what a 2K source would do in the same camera, you, you would never be able to um, compare that to the same camera shooting in 4K, even if the end result is the same. A 4K file and a 2K file at the source will always look different at 1080 and 720. So we have to try and push for the 4K source even if we don't master in it. Well, in just finishing, I wondered if I could do a bit of a left turn and 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 because we're friends you'll indulge me on this, but I I've respected your work for a long time and you know, we've discussed a lot of stuff digitally, but I have I think I have discovered something about you that I didn't know after many years of uh seeing your work, which is Nothing to do with this film, but I just wanted to touch on it. Is it true that in your own personal photography work, you shoot analog? It is true. <laughs> so That's you funny. just have to finish this interview by giving me uh, that perspective because uh, 
the work on the film stands and speaks for itself. So there's no question of, of one versus the other. But I'd love to know why you shoot stills on film. Well, it's not because I'm a hypocrite. Uh, at least I hope not. Um, well, very few people pick up on that. Um, and I actually just recently took my website down. I'm redoing a few things, and it'll go back up pretty soon. But I have a lot of film on my website and I have to say, the reason I shoot film on stills is because of a nostalgia that um, I guess I appreciate um, how I got the camera. It actually, my family, um, I'm, I, I try to learn a lot about my family and the people that were involved in the past and family members that have passed and, and gone on. And I have old photos I've tried to capture. And someday I'll make a big family tree um, because as, as with many um, immigrant families, um, especially that end up in the Midwest, my family ended up in Chicago. They were railroaders um, um, not very long ago. My grandfather, who I never got to meet, uh, was, was, was very poor. They come from, I mean, they, they lived in poverty, basically. And I think to look back at that and try each generation has tried to do better and, and worked hard. And that's because the previous generation did the same thing. And somehow I got this camera from, uh, it was um, my uncle Johnny's who, who died when I was probably 15 or 16. Um, and somehow when I came out to California, I got his camera. Prior to that, my father gave me his camera. And these are old Nikon cameras that are, you know, 35 years old. I mean, most people like that F3 know or? cameras. What's that? Is it like an F3 or what, what is it? That yeah, talking? yeah, just like that. Most people know I have one of those. that, yeah, if you know film cameras, you know that they just don't break. They don't <laughs> stop, you know. And I guess I just felt a connection with my family and I learned to use a camera. He was such a great photographer. Of course, he didn't have anything other than film and that's what made him happy. And he went to places and shot photos that I was able to visit. And um, my father was an animator and he did cell painting and he did animation for commercials in Chicago and he shot everything on film because of course that's the only way to expose 24 frames per second with cell painting animation. So film was always, you know, somewhat normal. When I was a little kid, my mom would take us to Kodak and I would drop off the film in the bin. And I'm talking rolls of 35 and 16 that my dad would expose at work. And he'd have my mom help him. We'd drop it off. We're talking, you know, motion picture film. And so I was just always around film, I guess. And when I got these cameras from my father as a teenager and as a young adult from my uncle, I just loved the ability to um, shoot these cameras. And the simplest thing was, I didn't have a lot of money. I had a camera that took great pictures. I couldn't afford a 1D or any of these cameras back then. And this camera was given to me and it had everything that I wanted. So, you know, there is something to be said about um, of, uh, film acquisition. And I am in no way against film acquisition. Can I ask in you a question? Because I, yeah. I was speaking to a guy who has uh, obviously a pretty heavy digital bent himself, and I still play yeah. L, I still play LPs. And I say one of the reasons that I like playing a record is the discipline of putting on an album and listening to it. I'm wondering, is there a discipline in stills photography when you have to put film in a camera that brings a certain clarity to your work? 
No question. Uh, the discipline of shooting film is something that nobody should take for granted. Um, I, I totally believe that, and I, I appreciate when people make um, statements about like records or things like that. Um, I think what's critical in terms of the discipline of the process is that if we have to go through certain um, barriers to entry in order to do this, that can be good, but I want to get that stuff digitized as soon as possible. That's where I make my stand. Shooting film or shooting applesauce is sometimes a quote I say. Like, I don't care what you shoot on, but get it to me as a file as quickly as possible. And that's where the magic comes about. It's file-based management and file-based manipulation. That's where the power of all this comes about. And I think that's what really has turned me on um, even in my film capturing and film shooting, um, it's, it's, it's where I love to work. I love to work with the files as a digital file, and I don't make prints or anything like that because I know that what I can do with a computer with my film is uh, far superior to what I could do with, you know, a bathtub in a dark room. So, you know, Mike, I love, I love anything that looks good. And that's why I shoot on Alexa, I shoot on the F-65 now, we do projects with the Phantoms and, and, and the Canon C300 and the Epic. I mean, yeah, they're all they're doing a good job of capturing a good picture. Yeah. But, and film does the job too, but we got to get it to a file. And, 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 and what's funny, Mike, is I would never say I hate film, but I would probably say without hesitation, I do hate tape. <laughs> yes, I don't think any of us have much nostalgia for uh, a digital beta cam tape. That's true. That's true. Well, look, uh, sorry to take you on that aside, but I, I remember seeing once uh, your, I think, Chicago photography, um, and I remember thinking it was really nice, and uh, I did always want to ask you about it, so uh, thanks for indulging me on that. And look, congratulations no on, on the film, which I know is the main thing we're here to talk about. Uh, and, you know, I, I saw them up as, as a kid. I loved them, and Quite frankly, uh, I was young enough to actually have seen the original Muppet Show when I was a kid and, and enjoyed it immensely. So um, I'm sure in some respects you must have uh, had a bit of fun uh, aside from the digital or the technical aspects of this film, just hanging out with a bunch of uh, very, very skilled artisans and, let's face it, anthropomorphized uh, puppets. No question. And, and like I said, what, like what you're pointing out here is in a world of complex digital imagery, 3D, animation, all this stuff, isn't it great that the audiences are ready to kind of go back? I mean, we're literally always looking at 3D and digital effects, and this movie is so back to the basics. I mean, like I said, I compared Don's photography to sort of like uh, Orson Welles. Like, we're going back to the basics, and I'm so glad that I'm, I'm really hoping that audiences are going to respond to that. And it shows, first of all, that things move in cycles, which is true. And it shows that there is a place for a Pixar movie and there's a place for a Muppet movie and a whole new generation can fall in love with it all over again. And that is so important because we don't want to replace everything with digitized media. Like that is not the goal of this. The goal of digitized media is to make life better, but not to eliminate things that work, not to eliminate things that have heart and soul and that we can fall in love with. And the Muppets are some of the simplest things. Their eyes don't blink. They basically have no lips, and you can never see them walk. That you never see except a, a half body shot. And most of the times, 
they have like someone helping them out. You can clearly see that like there's hands and sticks holding their arms up and stuff like that. I mean, like it, it, it's like that's so back to the basics. And for people to suspend disbelief on basically a really fancy sock puppet shows me that it's really all about storytelling. It, it couldn't be more about storytelling, and we don't have to have the biggest effects in order to get people interested. That's important for us as society. I think if the Muppet movie came out eight years ago, it probably wouldn't have done as well. And I'm hoping that it does well because audiences are ready to be reintroduced to this and kind of go back to the basics, which makes me excited. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, again, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. We do appreciate it. You got it, Mike. Well, that was great. Thank you. That was interesting about the Red Rocket card thing. That's uh, unusual. I don't know if you and I discussed that, but the Red Rocket card is That's not the sharpest way to get stuff transferred full stop. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. pretty close. Um, it's the fastest. It's certainly the fastest, yeah. But if you really had some reason to max out image sharpness, uh, then a software solution is going to be slightly faster. We've been doing tests on that. Oh, did I mention we'd been doing those on FX PhD? Sorry. <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. But yes, that's FX PhD, what's doing. that? Um, so what is, where does that softness come from, though? Oh, it's just literally uh, processing in hardware, and consequently it's not as algorithmically uh, beefy as what you can do when you're doing stuff in software when it's non-real time. Hmm. It's not shit. I mean, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's just at, at the very, very high end, which obviously is the area that Michael deals with, um, yeah. You know, these are the like last, I'm not even going to say last 1%, it's like sort of half a percent. But by the same token, uh, I think these things are good things to discuss because, um, you know, if we don't discuss them, who does kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with Red Rocket. I love Red Rocket. We process most of our stuff with Red Rocket, but, you know. Can't, can't you know, survive with that one, really. Mathematically, were to compare them, you would actually discover that you can get a slightly sharper result by going out in the software. Mm-hmm. Okay. Actually, I'm doing a bunch more tests at the moment over uh, green screen and stuff. We've been testing blue screen, green screen, um, and so I think that went out last week on FX. But we did yeah, tested tested tons of different uh, screens for uh, properties in terms of keying. Because that came up a bit on was it the anonymous? Yeah. FX, if, if, if FX Guide TV app that he was talking about that he but would much prefer to have shot blue screen. Well, he would green? creatively want to shoot blue screen because it's less taxing on the crew and the cast. Right. Um, but they were testing on Anonymous, because they didn't shoot obviously with Red, they shot with um, Alexa, as we heard on the thing when we talked mm-hmm. to Anna. They were shooting with the Red 1 MX pre-Red Colour 2, I believe. So um, that's why uh, those comments are slightly mm, not dated, but well, I guess mm-hmm. dated, but you know what I mean, like they're not most up to, because you know, it was a while ago that they obviously did the testing for a yeah. film that came out you yeah. know, a few months ago. Mm. Um, so looking forward, Jace, what have you got uh, coming down the pipe? I've heard about my trip to Hong Kong. What are you up to? Um, oh, I think I'm, at the moment I'm slated to, go to the slates about, slated to go to the States about three times next year, which should be good for uh, a couple of shoots and NAB, of course, which is all, all uh, penciled in. Very, very keen to uh, – I'm counting the days now. That's pretty sad. Though I hope that we have a T-shirt to wear at said NAB event. Um, so. <laughs> and a hat. And a hat. So uh, please, if you remember from the top of the show, uh, give us your submissions. Just email them. Where can they email them, Jace? They can email them to 
rc at uh, fxguide.com. And what is we need right? is, yeah, we need your details. Obviously, we can get that with your return email. But we, uh, we just basically need the tagline, you know, like what is it um, that we could put on the hat, the T-shirt that uh, would identify with you as a listener. Um, and, uh, look, we also want to thank you guys for um, the ones you've already submitted because some of them are, I thought, very, very clever and very uh, insightful. A couple of them I think um, I'm not going to put on a T-shirt, but mainly because I think my wife would hit me. But apart from that, yeah. Um, and I, I think the thing that came out of it, Chase, that was rather interesting is a lot of people focused in on rat holes. Um, yeah. I don't know that rat holes is really our uh, – we own that, but a lot of people did comment in passing how much they enjoyed it when you and I go off script. So, um, Which is in, very, very handy this time of the year when basically there ain't nothing happening. Well, speak for yourself, huh? You're pretty busy. Um, I think you're pretty busy. I mean, too. in the I think news, news department and the right, announcement okay, department. In news. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. I misread no. that. I apologize. Yep. Hey, I've got to go. I've got some okay. uh, compositing to do on Flame, and I'm running out of time in the day. Yes, um, good time. talking to you, my friend. Same here. Thanks, guys, for listening. Uh, uh, don't forget we're on Twitter, and uh, you can follow us there. Um, yep. And uh, Twitter.com slash Wingrove or uh, JasonWingrove.com or Vimeo.com slash channel slash Wingrove, I think. And you are Mike. I am Mike Seymour on Twitter, and just on FX Guide's the best place uh, to hunt me down. Um, like the dirty dog I am. Hey, uh, so thanks very much. We've got, I think, probably one more show to get in before the uh, end of the year, uh, which we'll try and sneak in right before Christmas as our, our Christmas special, where we'll hopefully be able to announce the winner of our uh, competition and flood you mm. with fame, fortune, and, uh, and software. Until next time, thanks so much, Jace. See you guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.